So once again, I say, Shana Tova. There's something I didn't know until I read it in the Moxor on page 29. No, you don't have to look. You have to pay attention to me. No, but if you do look later, if you do look later, you will find out that I didn't know that there's a whole tradition that Rosh Hashanah is not the big first day of creation. The, the first of Tishrei is actually the sixth day of creation. And that there's a whole tradition that goes with this, and that's why it's even put in the Maksor on page 29, which you're not looking at right now, but which I noticed last night. Because it's on the sixth day of creation that the living things are created, including the human being. And after the human being, the Adam, is created, God said, it was very good. So the day six of creation begins with God making wild animals and the domesticated animals and the things that crawl upon the earth. Think insects and lizards and such, and reptiles, amphibians. And then finally, the human. And God said, God said, let us make the Adam, let us make humankind in our image after our likeness. The commentators are puzzled, like most who read the line, by the use of the plurals here. Who is the us that God is speaking to or speaking about? And why after our likeness rather than after my likeness? The Midrashic commentaries go forth in many directions. Most familiar to us is probably that God was consulting with his angels, though the angels being part of the us making humankind is a poor fit. Not only are there no angels in the story, but having them co-author the human species is disturbingly like too many cooks in the kitchen. And yet the rabbis seem to want the casual reader to be satisfied by an audience of angels and to move on quickly. For those willing to linger further, the rabbis sought the answer to the plural in the very next verse. Vayivra Elohim eta adam b'tzammo b'tzelem Elohim bara oto zacharu nekeva bara otam. And God created humankind in the divine image, creating it, the species, in the image of God. Masculine and feminine created them. With the picture of the animal species in our minds, we might take the verse to be saying that God created some male ones and some female ones. But that reading erases the central feature in these two lines. God said, let us make the human being in our image, And God created humankind in its image, in the image of God, creating it masculine and feminine. And suddenly we see, let us make the human in a new light. Who is the us of let us make the human? Seems like it's God's preferred pronoun. Because God is both masculine and feminine at the same time. And not only is this incidental to the verse, but it's absolutely essential because that is precisely what being in the image of God means, that one is both genders at the same time. We could say perhaps that God's preferred pronouns are I, we, it, and probably most often just God, God's pronoun. The notion that God is a composite being and that God's composite nature is crucial to what is special about Judaism is not a new thought. God's name in these verses is Elohim, a plural form of the word Eloah, deity. The word we use in Yom Kippur, Eloah Selichot. And yet Elohim takes a singular verb. And think about that, a plural noun that takes a singular verb. 
It's not accidental. The radical nature of Jewish monotheism is that what others see as multiple independent deities are actually all facets within one God. Jewish theology even states that the archangels like Raphael are not separate entities from God, but extensions of God's presence. God reaching out into the world like a distant finger, still within God, but a facet extended. So when the angel Raphael heals, it's actually God healing, like through an extension. And the notion that we are talking about God's gender is not a new thought. Jewish theology has been talking about it for thousands of years. In the image of Elohim, masculine and feminine, God created the human species. It's kind of hard to miss. In Breshit Rabbah, the second to fifth century collection of classical rabbinic interpretations, Rabbis Yirmiyahu ben Azar and Shmuel bar Nachman explained that the original Adam of the verse was both fully female and fully male at the same time, being in the image of God. The other rabbis chime in with some unfortunate consequences. Turns out this being very good, which applies to the human, instead of just the good of everything in creation, it became a major problem. The angels, and maybe even God, according to the commentaries, gets jealous. A being that was a self-sustaining system of multitudes, both masculine and feminine, complete within oneself like God, that was too much like God. And so chapter 2 of Genesis comes along later, and there is an altogether new creation of the human species, this time from the dust of the earth, and this time divided into separate males and females. So now human beings need to learn how to partner with other human beings and how to form relationships, just as God was seeking to do through the creation of the human species. To have a partner in creation, not a spouse, but a partner. Partnership is not reducible to mating. Partnership is covenant. Interestingly, where the tradition goes with this is less about what it means for a man to be a man and a woman to be a woman than what it means for God's image to be both and for us to be in that image. The dominant and most influential form of Jewish theology for millennia has been the Jewish mystical tradition, usually called Kabbalah. Kabbalah is far less interested in the human body than it is in God's body. Reading that the original Adam was not a physical earthly form and that it was in the image of God, Kabbalah forms a picture of God as a composite being made up of 10 dynamic energies that metaphorically can be understood to be in the shape of a body. It's less that God has a body than that there is an energy signature to the universe. If DNA looks like a spiral staircase, then the God energy particle looks a bit like a stick figure. And it channels energies. Sometimes they say it's like pipes of water. Sometimes they say it's a tree of life. And the energies that transfer through it on one side are feminine and on one side are masculine. And I wish it were that simple, but it's not. Their image is that godliness is all possible gender identities together in one. And this is so different from pagan binaries of male and female, of sky god and mother earth. And suddenly the Torah suddenly comes alive a bit, especially in Numbers and Deuteronomy, when it really warns about adopting local Canaanite religion because it's based on the fact that there's a sky god and there's a mother earth and they need to get along. And men are with that and the women are with that and they need to get along. It's an utter binary. But no, ours is composite. In Jewish mysticism, we channel each of the God energies, 
each of them, including the ones that are not with the gender that we might think we are or identify with. But we never, ident- we never channel all ten energies at once. We too are in the image of God, though we are not all at once, and we use each energy frequency at different times. Some of those frequencies are well known to you. On the left side of the stick person, you get chesed, a forgiving, loving kindness. Its counterpart on the other side, gevura, is accountability, operating within the law. Strangely, I'm sure you would, I would think that chesed, forgiving parental love, must be from the female side, and that accountability and structure and order must be from the male side. And you would have it reversed. Ones with seemingly female gender stereotypes like mothering can be male. God is rachum, compassion, a word that comes from rechem, womb, and is often translated Rachamim or Rachum is womb love. But a man can have womb love too. God is El Rachum Vichanun, God of compassion and graciousness, and we channel these into the world to do God's will. The stereotypically male quality of holding people accountable is Gevura. And it is grammatically feminine and on the feminine side. The fact that we all channel God energies from both sides should lead us all to question whether the tradition is challenging each of us to expand our very notions of what gender can mean. Only two of the energies, their names are Yesod and Shekhinah, for those who study these things. Yesod and Shekhinah are the only two that are really associated with some kind of biological image. But biological males mostly channel Yesod, biological females mostly channel Shekhinah. Maybe it's something that you and I would call male energy and female energy. But even here, the boundary lines are not categorical. We have a blurring of the lines within the genders, within the image of God. And we too made in the image of God, while not all at once, can channel different parts of those energies. Moshe describes himself at one point in the Torah as a mother and a wet nurse to the Jewish people. And he's not happy about it at all. In fact, he pleads with God to get him some childcare. <laughs> True story. As God makes room for the creation of the universe in Lorianic Kabbalah, how can infinity make anything? And the Kabbalists say, well, that infinity has to make a space within infinity. And they call it a womb. And it is out of that womb that our universe is birthed. But you might say to me, well, you say there are these possibilities within a dominant form of Jewish theology, but I can show you that actual people who held these ideas in the past were quite normative about gender roles or preferential to male control. So we have these models of gender. But were they held by people who were very normative about assigned gender at birth and what they were doing. While this is a valid critique, I hold with those like Professor Charlotte von Robert at Stanford, who writes, we live in an exciting time when those reflecting on gender and gender justice within Jewish tradition are moving beyond a simple paradigm of patriarchy and its discontents 
and are exploring inherent possibilities and distinctions that even the male-dominated tradition didn't follow up on. And among these are halachic and midrashic categories of gender within rabbinic thought itself. She herself points out that there are at least seven gender categories within halakha and rabbinic commentaries. And she says, although the rabbis were committed to a fundamental assumption of gender duality, they were remarkably interested in the varieties of gender categories. In fact, those discussions pop up in the commentaries on the biblical stories that are the context for today's Torah readings. Avraham has his name changed when he becomes circumcised, and according to one Midrash, this certifies an actual gender category transition, as does Sarai's to Sarah, which coincides with her ability to conceive a child. She gains a hay and gives up a yud. She gains a womb or a divine feminine energy with the hay and gives up a yud a form of divine male energy. And it is beyond the period of which she should normally be able to have children that she transitions and becomes a mother. We have opinions that suggest that Jacob's daughter Dina was conceived with the soul of a man, but through divine intercession was transitioned into a woman. Likewise, the Kabbalah teaches that Abraham's son Isaac, who we're going to hear a lot about in tomorrow's Torah portion, and whom it says about over and over again, he's a boy, he's a son, he's a boy, he's a son, we barely get to hear his name. Tradition suggests he was born as a man for the purpose of carrying forward the family's unique covenant with God, but he was ensouled as a woman. And he fully embodies, according to our tradition, one of the divine energies, and it's a female energy. And who does he marry? He marries Rebecca, Rivka, who in virtually all attributes mirrors Abraham and thus represents the male counterpart energy within the stick man DNA structure of God. In fact, according to the Midrash, remember Sarah's laugh upon hearing the prophecy that she will have children? As trans writer Joy Layden She writes that Sarah's gender-violating transformation from aged infertile woman to at least partially rejuvenated motherhood is surrounded by laughter. She says, nowhere in the Torah is laughter mentioned more frequently. Abraham laughs when God tells him Sarah will have a child. Sarah laughs to herself when the angel passes the good news to her. She names the child laughter itself. It's lovely to hear laughter in the Torah. But when Sarah says, everyone who hears will laugh at me, She shows that she knows how fragile her new gender identity is, how likely the idea of Sarah as a new mother is to provoke not only laughter, but skepticism, doubt, and gossip. According to the Midrash, Sarah was well aware that others might doubt that she had in fact given birth to and nursed her son. And this is why in verse 8 of chapter 21, Abraham held a great feast on that day, the day that Isaac was weaned. The Midrash states that it was so that she could show that she was actually nursing. This is a laugh that trans folk know well. The laughter you exhibit when you listen to the angel tell you you're not what you seem and you need to show your true self and transition. And the laughter that others will exhibit when you tell them 
and the proof that they will want and the uncertainty in that laugh of whether they are really accepting you. So Leiden and von Robert find in the distinctions in theology that the Jewish tradition provides the voices of angels, the voices of openness, not laughing at, but laughing with. Von Robert writes, putting aside the issue of what these distinctions actually meant for the Talmudic rabbis, these different categorical categories of gender, we are now in a powerful moment in contemporary Jewish life when readers of these texts identify with categories that the rabbis invented and do so in order to develop a new social vision for us all. And yet the effect of the Talmud's attempt to understand and articulate these varieties suggests an orientation definitely of inclusiveness rather than of punishment. For the rabbis, von Robert writes, it was much more important to demonstrate that the Torah in the form of law or halakha could absorb everything, everything under its mantle. We are a congregation who can follow the lead of the rabbis and absorb everything under this mantle. We know we live in Ann Arbor, and we know we have folks of different forms of gender identification, trans women, trans men, non-binary people, and people who queer lines, queer boundary lines within their gender identification. And I hope it's okay that I'm talking about it, even though I'm not one who is, even though I have a pretty simple one, although I do now. But what I do know is that we all within ourselves channel all kinds of energies that make us in the divine image. Elliot Wolfson, the great scholar of Kabbalah, wrote that even the Jewish mystics on Shabbat took seriously the idea that on Shabbat they should become more like God and be unified in harmonious tiferet patterns within And Elliot Wilson writes that, and so they took on typically female gender stereotypical roles like childcare and serving food and cleaning up from the table. You know all that stuff about my wife is the queen, she shouldn't have to work on Shabbos. Have you ever gone to Mea Sharim on Shabbos? You ever look at the playgrounds? It's all men in payas taking care of kids. There's an origin of that, which is Kabbalistic origin that on Shabbat, if you lean more in one direction of your energies, lean in the other, channel the other through you so you can find balance within, so you can become more like God. There are ways to read our sources that teach us. One of the things that Dr. Joy Leiden has written about is the problematic line in Deuteronomy 22, verse 5. Or maybe it's not problematic at all. It's the only verse of the Torah that seems to speak about transgender or non-binary people. She writes, that means me. People born physically male or female who identify so strongly with the opposite gender that we can only live authentically as that gender. It says, a woman must not put on man's apparel, nor shall a man wear woman's clothing, for whoever does these things is abhorrent to your God. But Rashi reads this verse not as a prohibition against 
cross-dressing itself, but against cross-dressing in order to commit fraud. The mitzvah is it's only a violation to do so if you're on your way either to committing adultery or voyeurism, and you're using those clothes as a disguise. Not only does Leyden find in the traditional reading relief that the tradition chose to limit the prohibition to a very narrow definition, but she sees a message for today in framing the issue. She says, Rashi's reading also restores the subjectivity the plain text leaves out. The cross-dressing woman in his gloss clearly identifies herself as a woman because she knows she is dressing in a way that deceives others about who she is. To Rashi, what God abhors is not cross-dressing, It's the perversion of gender expression from a system for communicating who we are to a means of misrepresenting oneself that deceives others. To Rashi then, I do not violate this law when I wear what I and my society consider women's clothing in order to express my female gender identification. That is, to express my authentic self of who I am. It is more accurate to say that I was violating it before my gender transition, when I presented myself as a man despite privately identifying as a woman, using male clothing at the time in order to present myself as someone I knew I wasn't. So we've taken some steps this year at Beth Israel. Those we call up for affirmation can choose bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah or brit mitzvah the covenant of mitzvah. We call up people by names. It doesn't have to be son of or daughter of. It can be, as the conservative movement has said in stone halakhically, as mi bet. This is a person from the house of their parents. This is a person from the house of their family. We on this bima not long ago have done renaming ceremonies like God did for Sarah, Sarai, Sarah, and Avram, Avraham, who both gain haze. We've done them on the spima, using the traditional formulas and the traditions that we've inherited. We have an amazing theology. We have amazing messages that challenge us about our own identities and our own possibilities and the way God shines forth through others as we invite them to be their transitioning selves, their exploring selves, and their authentic selves. As clay in the hands of the potter, as glass in the hands of the glass blower, we are each made from our own chomer, our own material. And may God shape it so we can each walk with God. And may they at Beth Israel walk with God alongside each other. And may we continually see the image of God in ourselves and in each other. Shana Tova.